Bibles to the Gospel of John. How many of you are already turned to Luke? Look at that. Gospel of John, we read Luke 23 last week in its entirety, along with Luke chapter 22. I want to do the companion verses in John 18. So we will begin reading in John 18, verse 28. John chapter 18, verse 28. God's Word says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world. That I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. 
Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went unto, out to the place, I'm sorry, to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunics were without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own house. After this, Jesus, knowing that the all things were now accomplished, the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should remain on the cross on the Sabbath, should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the leg of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows what he is telling, that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Well, we come to Luke chapter 23. And last Sunday we had our uh, communion and developed it around chapters 22 and 23. Uh, as a church family, that was not on our podcast because of the intimacy that we wanted for that event. And so we come into chapter 23. We have read it with annotation. And that's essentially what we did last week is, is read through the text and stop occasionally to reference some points that we've already studied as well as some points that we are going to be studying this week and in the next weeks to come. But we come, and, and just to remind you, several weeks ago we left off uh, having worked through Christ's uh, being rejected by his own people, the nation of Israel. That's going to be extended today in our text regarding his, his trial before Pilate. Um, he's going to be rejected again by his own people who are going to make the bold proclamation uh, forthrightly. This man is not our king. Our king is Caesar, which in and of itself is a treacherous thing for any Jew to say. Recognize that a heathen uh, king who in, in no way, shape, or form recognized the Jewish God, our God, and calling him king and making that declaration in a very public and powerful way. And that's the extent to which they are willing to go in their rejection of Jesus Christ. Is that they are willing to go all the way over to this other end and reject him in his in, entirely and even reject their own nationalism in their efforts to bring judgment on Jesus' head. We saw also the rejection of his inner circle among the twelve. We have, uh, obviously have studied Judas and his betrayal. We saw Peter and his denial. We looked at the twelve and their scattering. We certainly know of, of their lingering in the margins around Jesus throughout this account of the next 24 hours where they are off in a distance or they're in an outer courtyard listening to what's going on, but essentially they have abandoned him. We come to chapter 23 and we find him coming to yet another layer of society that is going to reject him. And Jesus himself declares that they are the least guilty. 
that's an interesting concept that I want to study a little bit this morning. And before we do so, though, I want to go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word before us and for what it declares, for the opportunity to consider anew. Lord, we pray that it might be that for each one here. Not just rehearsal and not just uh, I've heard it before, but we might truly look at it afresh of who you are and what you have truly done for us. Lord, we need your Spirit's help in this. For it is easy for us to, in our arrogance, think we know this. And there's nothing for us to consider and to learn and to investigate. And Lord, our prayer and desire is that um, we might truly, as the song says, desire them to be sung over to us again and again. Wonderful words of life. Lord, we pray you might guard this time from error and from opinion, from speculation, from the philosophies of this world. That it might truly be your word. We pray your Spirit's work in that. Both in myself and in each one of us listening. That you might have liberty to work in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. We looked, when we looked at Peter's denial, and we contrasted Peter to Judas, um, where Judas sought no restoration. He sought no forgiveness. He had the remorse. He had the guilt. That was obvious. But instead of seeking out Christ, that guilt hung on him. And it brought him to that point of taking his own life. He threw away the money. The money wasn't value anymore. <laughs> it wasn't important. Now that he realized what he has done and what's entailed in it, that betrayal of our Lord and the guilt just settled on him. And we think, well, if people feel guilty for their sin, that's enough and they'll certainly come to Christ then. Well, Judas is our statement that that isn't all that is involved. It is certainly a step that's involved, but remorse or guilt for doing wrong is not going to automatically bring you to the point of asking for forgiveness. Peter has denied Christ. It weighs heavily on him. He is weeping. He is remorseful and, and Christ is going to address this later on after the resurrection. But Peter is in a condition of still recognizing that, that uh, all he has is Christ. All of his hope, all, all of, even though I failed him, he is my only hope and I can't just abandon it, even though I've forsaken him. Now, both men were prophesied. Christ stated, this man, someone at this table is going to betray me. So Judas knew in advance Jesus identified it. Peter himself was also told in advance, you will deny me. So what is the difference? The difference comes in their understanding of what is about to happen in chapter 23, and that is that Christ is about deliverance. Judas never really got that. Peter fully 
at some degree recognize that He would be my hope, that He alone would be the one I have to trust in, even though I have failed horribly here, who can I go to? What? Where's there a solution? Of course, we looked at the leadership of Israel and they were rigid. They had no remorse over what they have done and what they continue to do. They're going to heap it upon themselves more and more. And this is the self-righteous individual who can do evil and do it and do it again and justify themselves and they need no Savior, they think. Because in their mind, they have made themselves non-sinners. They have done what is right. It is justified in their own eyes. Well, now we come to another class of sin and of this abandonment of Christ. And here we have the weight that is on the government, if you will, of the day. Um, We're going to personify that, of course, in the man Pilate. But, of course, Luke tells the Herod was involved too. And, in fact, that day they came into a right relationship with one another over this situation with Jesus. Kind of interesting, isn't it, how that can still happen today? That enemies can come together against a common good. You thought I was going to say common enemy, didn't Didn't you? That's how the statement goes. But this wasn't a common enemy. This was a common good. They had this one in common. And both of them, from the very outset, have very positive expectations of Jesus. They're coming to Him not as an adversary. They're coming to Him not really... uh, uh, his enemy. If, if anything, Herod had a very positive approach. He, he was looking forward to meeting this man. He was, he was anxious to meet him. He was excited about it. He was a little disappointed because what he really wanted was to see miracles. When he didn't get what he wanted, like a selfish child that Herod often was at that point, um, he simply said, go away. If you don't give me what I want, my way, my time, I'll have nothing to do with you. And of course, we have individuals like that that you will encounter. If God doesn't do things my way, my time, to my expectations, I don't need Him. If God isn't like Santa Claus, I don't need Him. But Herod has a higher judgment on him because he knew. He had been witnessed to by John the Baptist. He knew about Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that Luke tells us that Jesus had no interaction with him. It says in verse 6 of chapter uh, 23 that when Pilate heard of Galilee, that he asked the man of Galilee, and so he sends him to Jesus, or sends Jesus to Herod, sorry. Uh, Verse 8, Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and had hoped to see some miracle done by him. This was a man who had knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
questioned him with many words, verse 9, but he answered him nothing. Jesus said nothing to him because Herod had heard everything he needed to hear. But Herod was not questioning him with the disposition of wanting to understand or know anything more about him than what he already knew. He already knew enough to receive him. He already had heard enough, and he had already received the witness of John the Baptist extensively. And if there's any place in Jesus' ministry, would you say that, that he applied the principle of let's not throw pearls before swine, it was here. He would say nothing to this man. This man had been confronted with his sin by John the Baptist. He had John the Baptist under house arrest in his house for a lengthy period of time. He had heard him preach. He knew about this coming one, this Messiah that was to come. He was well versed and well understood what was going on in this realm, in his kingdom. And he had no interest of humbling himself to the camp kings and lord of lords. He had no real interest other than selfish curiosity in Jesus Christ. But the one the Bible says is under less penalty in this whole process is the one that we're going to spend a little more time on this morning, that is Pilate. Pilate becomes an intriguing character in, on this day. He is not the center uh, the center is Jesus Christ. He is the character of the day. Pilate is woken up to his responsibilities of his office. He is probably taken alarmed at this for several reasons. We know that he was warned, he and so by his own relative. Don't do anything with this man. I had a bad night. I had some bad dreams about him. You know, don't, don't do anything with this. This is bad. So he too had some warning in the process. Not right before it happened. But in the process, he had some warning. Be careful of how you exercise your responsibilities this day with regard to this man. But why would he be caught off guard a little bit is the idea that on this day, during this season, why would the Jews be doing this? This is their high season. This is their high day. They're all worried about worship. They're all worried about getting ready for, for um, the sacrifice that night. This is the, their Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is, this is Passover. All of this is going on. There's all this activity, religious activity, uh, Certainly today they had other things on their mind than a court and a crucifixion. And so to say that Pilate wasn't really expecting this this day is probably an understatement. They come to him. And they begin accusing him. And we read from John earlier this morning to find out that uh, they wouldn't go into his house. That would make them ceremonially unclean. And so they stood out in the praetorium, in, out in the courtyard. And John 18 describes that. It was very early in the morning. 
So Pilate has to get up and not only face this, he has to go out into the praetorium. He has to go out into that, that uh, uh, outside of his living area, out into the more public space, and engage them. And he's confronted with their accusations. And we already know what this is like because we already had it happen, and that was the night before. That there would be all of these accusations, that they would be thrown out that, that in rapid fire, they would be contradicting each other. This isn't, by the way, the last time the Jews are going to be doing that. Um, it's going to happen again with Paul, when Paul is going to go to court um, there in Caesarea, and there's all this uh, accusations, and they're, and they're opposite of each other, and they oppose each other, and, and finally... Um, you know, Paul realizes what's happening here and, and he says, I'm going to appeal to Caesar um, because even Felix and Festus seem confused. And none of their accusations agreed. Well, so it is here. But what comes out is that the accusations are obviously empty. They are obviously wrong. Pilate doesn't have to interview Christ. He's already come to his decision just hearing the nonsense of the accusations being brought against this man and the contradictory nature of them. They finally boil down to say, well, you know, we wouldn't have gone through all this if he wasn't evil. So you just trust us. (laughs) And Pilate who shows some character here, says, well, that's not my job. My job isn't to follow the mob. My job before Caesar is to enforce Roman ideals of justice. And so he brings Christ in and interviews Christ. Are you the king of the Jews? And unlike Herod, Christ is going to be very forthright with Pilate. It is as you say. If that is the greatest accusation against him, for it is the only recorded question of Pilate in the first round, Pilate says, I don't find a problem with that. Essentially, Christ's response is, well, that's what everyone says. The statement is, that's what everyone says. Christ isn't here saying, yes, I am. He hasn't come to that point yet. He's going to develop that with Pilate once he gets Pilate to think more deeply about some other things, that I'm of a different world and I'm, you're involved in something that's bigger than you've ever been involved in in your whole life. And this is the whole reason you've been living your life is to be brought to this very day. Christ is going to develop those themes. In that, but he begins by just saying, that's what they say. That's what everyone's saying, including you. And this is the exact same response he gave to them. You said it. You said so. And you're right. I'm agreeing. I'm not disagreeing, but I'm not making the declaration in front of you. I am agreeing that that's the declaration being made about me. And Pilate says, well, that's not the same. And I don't find fault in him. Why would he come to this conclusion in verse 4 so quickly? Is drawn upon who's bringing it. 
the chief priests, the leaders of the people, the scribes, had they identified, truly identified Jesus as king of the Jews, would not have brought this man at all to Pilate. And Pilate understood that, that they were subversive to his government, the very character and nature of Israel. The Maccabean revolt was not so long ago. It was still being celebrated. It was already being celebrated here in Israel. And so he recognized that if there was a true, or if there was someone that, that, that was gathering enough force to truly uh, seek to raise up rebellion against the Roman Empire, that these men would be a part of that. And for them to bring this man to him meant that he was their enemy, not necessarily Rome's. So he says, I don't find any fault with this. This is. But they were more fierce, the Bible says. And says, oh, and, and further accusations. We know, of course, that they also said, you know, he's telling people not to pay their taxes, which is interesting because he paid his taxes. Remember the little fish they went and caught and reeled in and said, go, that was the temple tax, and, and why should I pay it my own place? And did Christ ever teach this? He said, render to Caesar what Caesar's and the gods what gods. So they're perverting every single angle they can get to try to get a Roman official to consider this man a menace. Pilate doesn't bite. Engaging him again and again. And of course, uh, Luke doesn't give us extensive, the extensive information. John really does give us that. We read that this morning of this interview. Who are you? I know who they say you are, and you say that they say so, and I say so. Um, who are you? <laughs> I want to know. I want to understand. I, I want some information here. And Pilate seeks it out, and, and Christ obliges him. And John gives us that that information of what Christ tells him. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. First of all, you're dealing with someone you've, like you've never dealt with. When we introduce Christ to other individuals, one of the things we need to understand is the necessity for them to know that Jesus Christ is like no other man. It was not just a good man that lived a long time ago. There have been plenty of good men that lived a long time ago, so to speak. There are plenty of other teachers around. There are plenty of people that died on crosses. Lots of them. But I'm unique. I am a king, but I'm a king of a different kingdom. I am not of this world. And my servants aren't either. That's very important. It's one of the more important passages, I think, to talk about how we function in this world is when Christ is just... A, and I'm, by the way, I'm in John 18, if you didn't make their, your way over there earlier. John 18, verse 20... I'm sorry, verse 36. If I had an earthly kingdom here, my servants would be taking up swords... They would be fighting right now. But they're not fighting. I have given no directive for them to fight. 
because we're not really right now Rome's enemy. The enemy that I'm dealing with is sin and death. That's the enemy that I'm dealing with. That's why I've come here. That's why I was sent. And so my servants, it says, would fight, but I gave them no directive to do that. I do not expect them to do that because their fight isn't about the earth. Their fight is about a different world. We are engaged in a spiritual warfare. And it is in that that we are, that we are called to. It is a war that is not fought with swords, is not fought with guns, is not fought with the, our, with the mechanisms of this world. It is fought by those things that God provides us. And we looked at that when we looked at Christ's instruction to say, now it's time to arm yourself. It's time to get your resources together because you're going to go out into the world and do my work. But we're not doing the work of this world in the world. We're doing the work of that world, of the heavenly realm in this place. That's why the Bible refers to us as ambassadors. And so this instruction or this description by Jesus Christ to Pilate um, tells, gives us some direction as to where, what is our role here. And our role here is not to fight like the world to engage in this otherworldly work. And so our sword is the Word of God. The power we trust in isn't nuclear, it's supernuclear. It's called the Holy Spirit. Our tactics are to love unconditionally. That's our tactic. Our message is the gospel. Our mode is sacrifice. It is how we do what we do. We do it through sacrifice. We have an example, and that is the example we're studying today of Christ in His sacrifice. This is how we engage this world on the spiritual plane. So, Pilate is confronted with this radical view. He goes on, 